Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at this section of Scripture. We ask you to guide, lead, show us what you would want us to see from all of this. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jude, chapter 1, verse 5. Um, we're still in the midst of him talking about the false teachers that are coming into the churches. We talked about this uh, last week uh, from chapter, uh, from verse 4. To verse 19, he's talking about the false teachers that have been coming in. So here we, here we go in verse 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. So we're going to stop there for this moment because he's now speaking to them, which tells us that he seems to be speaking to Jewish believers because he's going to remind them of things that they should already know. And he says, I want to put you in remembrance, though you once knew, and the, and the idea on this is, you knew this and you still know it. All right, so this isn't like you knew it and forgot it. He goes, you still should remember this. So what kind of thing, you know, uh, how God had saved the people out of the land of Egypt and afterward destroyed them that believed not. So we want to look at this. They've rejected God in the wilderness. So he's referring back to the people of Egypt. They've left uh, the children of Egypt, have, children of Israel, have left Egypt, and if you remember all the different things that happened to them, and just I just highlighted a couple of them in my notes. The very first thing they did, they get to the Red Sea, and immediately they're complaining to Moses that, well, you let us out because there's not enough graves in Egypt. You let us out here so that we could die in the in the wilderness because they had the Red Sea on one side, mountains on both sides, and Pharaoh and his army on the other side. And immediately, they're griping. Then we have, as soon as they cross the Red Sea, in a great miracle, God splits the Red Sea open for them. Probably the little peninsula bridge that's out there in the Red Sea, it's only about 100, 100 to 150 feet deep down into the Red Sea. Cross the Red Sea, they get to the other side, and immediately they start complaining, we're thirsty. And they go the same thing to Moses. He brought us out here so that we could die in the wilderness because there wasn't enough graves in Egypt. And then they go and they find their way finally to Mount Sinai. And we know the story there. Moses goes up on the mountain. He's up there for 40 days. And they tell Aaron, uh, we don't know what's happened to this guy Moses. You know, he, took, you know, he went up on the mountain and he got lost or died or something. He's been gone for 40 days. And they go, make us a God that can be our, be our God. And Aaron, with his very strong personality, is a good, good high priest, says, okay, give me all your gold, and makes them a golden calf. And then gives probably the worst excuse I've ever heard of any, in anywhere in the Bible, when he makes his excuse to Moses, well, I threw the gold into the fire, and out came this, this calf. Now, Moses, it was a miracle. I just threw the gold in the fire, and out, out walked this calf. Uh, and all through this, we see all this problems going on. And when Moses comes down, tens of thousands of, of Israelites were killed because of their idolatry worship. Then they start getting manna. And they're not listening to the instructions even when they get manna. And, the, and we had the guy that goes out on the Sabbath day to get manna and and they end up stoning him because he was trying to work on, on, the, on the Sabbath. Uh, 
we see over and over these things that went on. We see the, the plague at Kirarat Aran where they rebelled, where Korah rebelled against Moses and Aaron and basically said, Aaron, you know, Moses, you're taking too much on yourself. You're, you're the leader and you made your brother the, the high priest. You know, who, who, we're, 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 we're of your family as well. We're Levites, you know, why do you get all these special privileges? And that is when Aaron's rod budded and then they decided they were still going to have problems and God opened up the earth and swallowed Korah and 250 elders and their families in destruction because of their disobedience. Over and over again, and I can, we could go through, I'm not going to go through the whole Pentateuch with us and give us every single place that they rebelled, but he's saying... You need to remember rebellion because he's talking to these false teachers who are teaching false doctrines. And this is something we need to be careful of. And it's so interesting to me as I listen to various teachers on the radio and I listen to a lot of them. And some of them I, I know to turn off as soon as they come on because they're so bad. But even the ones that I like oftentimes say things I'm going, where in the world did you learn that doctrine? It's not scriptural. And he's telling them, understand that these things are out there and God destroyed those that believed not, that did not follow God. An entire nation was taken out of Egypt, but not every one of them believed in God and trusted God. And this is true even in every church. Every church is going to have people in it that aren't believers. And usually those ones will cause problems in the church. And we need to be very careful around people and be discerning around people. And this is very important for us to learn discernment. Listen to the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit speaks and be able to judge what's going on, not as a con condemnation judgment, but to say, does this match what scripture says? And there's many times when I'm listening to these teachers, and a lot of times I'm just listening to them to the background. I'm not even really paying a whole lot of attention. But all of a sudden, something in the back of my mind will just click, and I know it's the Holy Spirit. And it's basically saying, pay attention. And I start paying attention to what they're saying. I'm going, oh, let's get this off. The <laughs> let's get this off now and turn it, turn it off. And I've had this happen with some very good teachers that all of a sudden have some doctrine on it that is just not right and have to turn off. But there's also certain teachers on some of these shows that I just won't listen to because they're wrong more than they're right. And the one thing that we want to be very careful of is not to poison our minds with false doctrines. Because the problem with that is if you hear it often enough, it starts to influence the way we think. So we need to be very careful to not fill our minds with false premises. This is what I've shared with you. If you want to study other religions, I really have no problem with that. But if you do, spend an equal amount of time in God's word to wash your mind of all the garbage you just put into it. And I would really tell you it's not worth studying the false religions and cults because what really matters is what is true. 
when I witness to any of these people that are in cults and false religions, I'm not trying to argue them out of their religion by telling them how bad their religion is. First thing, it's not going to work in the long run. I'm going to tell them the truth. This is what God did for you. Well, I don't believe that Jesus is God. I don't care whether you believe it or not. He is God. He said he was God. He claimed that he was God. The Bible claims, well, I don't believe the Bible. I don't care. I'm going to use the Bible to witness to them. Why? Because God says his word does not return void. So our job is just to tell people the truth. Because we're not going to argue them out of their, their belief system. And if we did argue them out of their belief system, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. The leader of their of their religion or cult or whatever it is is going to come and give them answers while you're not there to argue them back into it. We must just give them the truth and teach them the truth. Uh, you know, one of the best books on the cults is The Kingdom of the Cults, written by Walter Martin. The only problem is it's a worthless book for witnessing. Because most of the time you use what he says, which is true, they don't even know that it's true because they don't know how depraved their religion and cults are. And they were going to argue with you that it's not what they're being taught. And you're not going to be able to get them to believe it. So what do you want to do? You teach the truth. And it's the one thing we need to do. The truth. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He was a son of God. He died for our sins so that we can make it into heaven. He is the way, the truth, and life, that no one comes to the Father except by him, and the truth will set us free. Period. Because once you get the truth in you, and you're set free, you're not going to believe the lie and put you back under bondage. <laughs> because the truth is what you're going to be dependent on. And so here he's teaching them, these people are liars leading you into death and unbelief. And we need to be very careful with following those kind of things. And how do we witness to these people? Because I've been asked so many times, well, how do you witness to a Mormon? We're sinners. We're, we, Jesus died for us. We're going to get to, how do you witness to a Muslim? We're sinners. Jesus died for us. And he's the only way to, how do I witness to, and pick, your, pick it whatever it is. We're sinners. <laughs> Jesus died for us. And he's the only way to heaven. It doesn't matter who I'm witnessing to. The, the gospel is the gospel. And I, in my early days, believe me, I tried, I tried real hard. I used to know all those different things, and I still know a lot of it. I used to try to argue them out of what they believed and everything, and it never worked. The only thing we can do is go and teach the truth and be able to lift up the truth. This is why the Judaizers would have a hard time when they followed Paul everywhere, because he had taught the truth. He had liberated people. So when they came with his law and legalism, he got, he was able, they were able to pick off some of it, but they did not pick off the whole church because they were, they were like, oh, we've been delivered from this. We know what it means to be set free. And this is what we have to understand. We've been talking a lot about grace. So much of the church of, of God does not understand grace and doesn't understand salvation. I was listening to this person uh, coming home today when, when I took Lynn home and came back. They were talking about the rapture, surprisingly, and they were believing in a partial rapture. If you weren't good enough, you didn't get raptured. I'm going, you don't understand grace. You don't understand salvation in any way 
with that attitude. Now, now I'm not going to say everybody who claims to be a, be a Christian is actually saved. They're not going in the rapture. But it's not our works that earn us the right to go in the rapture, just like it is not our works that earn us the right to get into heaven. It is the grace of God because of what Jesus did for us. And we've got to be able to understand that. And there are so many people who just won't accept that. For by grace are we saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we like the idea that we're saved by grace, but then we try to think that we have to keep ourselves by works. And we're kept by grace as much as we're saved by grace. And this is very important for us to fully understand because when we start putting works in there, we start judging one another. We start saying, well, I'm better than this person and this person's better than me. And, and it's all by the mercy of God and his grace that we're even able to go to heaven. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ and God accepts us because of that. Now, there are rewards. Don't get me wrong. There are rewards. There are good things that happen to us by obedience. And there are bad things that happen to us by disobedience, but they're not heaven and hell issues. And so here he's talking about these people and saying, remember all of these things and how people were taken out and they were destroyed because of their unbelief. Jesus told the story of the weed and the tares and he goes, and they said the angels went on, should we just pull up the, the tares? And he goes, no, unless, because if you pull up the tares, you might damage the wheat. And that's hard for us at times to look around at the church and wonder, how many people are tares in the church and God is leaving them there just so he doesn't tear up the wheat, the good, the good as well. And you're going, God, you could do it. But he's doing things for us so that we can learn. Trials help us learn truth and show the trust we have in God. And, you know, so many people will say, you know, well, I don't want trials. It's not nice. It's not good. And the trials are what makes us stronger. And we've, I've mentioned this before, but when they were first started putting biodomes in it and they put big ones in there that they could plant trees, when the trees got to a certain size, they started splitting in two. And they got a botanist in there saying, what's going on with our trees? And then going, I'll tell you what's wrong with the trees. They have no wind and storms to make them strong. And apparently the wind and the strong tie up the, you know, tie up the fibers in them and help them get strong. And without those, without the storms on blowing them around, they did not get strong. And then when they got so big, they would be <laughs> torn up. And it's quite a view, but God knows what we need, which is a little bit of storms in our life. And we probably go, God, I really don't want the storms. But God says, you need the storms. The storms do strengthen us. How many times have you gone through something that made you ready for the next big storm in your life? That if you really thought about it, you're going, well, if I hadn't gone through whatever it was in the past, this would have destroyed me. Or you look at some Christian who's been a Christian for a long time and you watch some of the stuff they go through and go, God, I'd never be able to go through that. And if you listen to God, he's probably going to say, well, when, you, when you're ready, you will be able to go through those things. Because everything we go through is hard to us at the time we're going through it. Doesn't matter what it is. First time I go through anything, it's hard. And God just intensifies it and says, okay, now we're going to give it a little harder and a little harder. But you're, you're prepared for it. And this is where we're at as we go through this. 
and proves our trust to us. Not to God. He already knows whether we trust, but it proves us. Because we'll come in saying, God, I really, really believe this. And so he sends a test on it to see, do we really believe it? And we fall flat on our face and go on, oh, I guess I didn't believe this as much as I thought I did. And that's all these tests are doing is saying, do I really believe what I believe? Because it's easy to fool ourselves into believing that we believe something when there's no test. It's easy, and this is what I say. I really hope to say when I'm facing death as a martyr that, yes, I'm ready to take it, and I think I am. But you know what? I don't know until I actually face a firing squad, a guillotine, a sword, whatever it might be, that I am really ready to, to die for Christ. I think I am. I've said I you know, am, but I won't know until the day that I have to face it. And that's all of this testing for us. Do you believe? Up and down, up and down. You get it, and again, and again, and again, start over. Go, start. Okay. <laughs> and that's the problem we go. We get into the middle of a problem, and it's like, oh, I thought I really believed that you were, you know, that all things work together for good, and then I struggle when as soon as something bad happens to me. And go, oh, don't think so. Nope, uh, this, is, this can't be good. Do I believe it or not? My complaint to God is, God, I don't know how this can be good, but you've promised it's good, so I'm going to hold on to it. But I have lots of other places where he comes along and says, well, do you really believe this? Do you really believe this? And he challenges us to say, is it, is it what you're going to believe? And all of this comes down to the trial, <laughs> the trial of what we believe. And he says, do you really believe what you say you believe. And it gets hard sometimes. It gets very hard to hold fast. And yet that's what we're told. Hold fast. And that's what he was saying here. You, you should know these things and it should be very clear to you that you know these things. And the whole purpose of going through these stories is so that we can see the people who are successful walking through, the story, walking through their hard times the people who were unsuccessful walking through those hard times, both of them we can learn lessons from and be able to see that we're just like them. There are times when we're going to walk through successfully and times when we're going to fall flat on our face and if it's a severe enough test, have to have bad consequences. Now most of us aren't going to face death because of our decisions, but we could if it's severe enough. If you want to be Korah and rebel against everything that God's putting out there and saying that you're equal to everybody, then you would get what you deserve. And I do understand that God is still out there bringing judgment on those that go after authority. When I was in a church, I went out with a deacon to talk to, a, to another deacon who kept attacking the pastor for stupid reasons. And we basically told him, you are not following God, you need to go straight to the pastor if you have a problem and talk with him, not be attacking him. He kept attacking him and his whole life fell apart. His wife divorced him, two of his sons died, he got sick, and I'm fully convinced that it was because of attacking the authority in that church with, with no reasons. All right? uh, and especially after he'd been told that it was not something he should be doing. And he kept doing it, and that judgment fell on him. And I've seen that happen more than once, where somebody is attacking authorities, 
And God doesn't play loose with that. And we're going to see in, in this, this, this book where that happens as well, except that it's done right. Uh, but it's very important. God does not take lightly people challenging his, his truth. And it can cause major issues. And this is, this is hard. There are consequences to our sins. And the sad thing is, there's consequences for our sins for people that we are over. So apparently, especially for fathers, mothers, pastors, our disobedience just doesn't affect us. It affects an entire family. And people that are in government positions, their bad decisions affect not just them. It would be really nice if the bad decisions only affected them. But the consequences flow down and affect everybody in the nation that they're, o- that, they're, that they're over because they have authority. And we see it all through the scripture over and over again. The good kings brought good, good consequences. The bad kings brought bad consequences. And we see it over and over. So we know that it is true even at that level. And this is a serious thing that people have to fully understand. Their consequences hurt others not just themselves. Because we always hear it when you go, well, I'm only hurting myself. Well, there is no such thing as hurting yourself. That is the mentality of people who commit suicide. The only one I'm hurting is myself. Well, and the person who finds your body and your family that's missing you and and everybody else that is going to, well, I'm only helping them because my life is so miserable and I'm helping them. No, you're going to cause great pain to them. Now, and there's many sins that people go, well, I'm only hurting myself if I do them. And there's no such thing as hurting just yourself as, you, as we go through. All right, verse 6. We're probably going to stick on verse 6 for a little while. <laughs> uh, verse 6 says, And the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto judgment of the great day. So here we have a very controversial verse. There are two major opinions on this, on this verse. So we're going to take a look at this, and it says, the angels that kept not their first estate. So the question is, what was the first estate of the angels that they kept not? Now, there is the school of thought that I'm in, that, that Satan led a rebellion in heaven, and, that was, and they abandoned their first estate by a rebellion against God and trying to be like God. That is my opinion. The other one puts them in the place of Genesis 6. They had already fallen, and then they went out, and then they had sex with women and had, child, you know, had half-breed children. Uh, out of that idea comes an entire line of, of thought, which we'll talk about in, ju- you know, in just a moment. Uh, but I'm going to stick with, let's take the second one first. <laughs> That Roman uh, Genesis 6, where it talks about the Nephilim, <laughs> which were the mighty giants of the land, the evil ones of the land in, in, Noah, in Noah's time. Um, there is this group that says that the angels, because it says the sons of God saw the, the daughters of, of uh, Adam, and, and uh, Nephilim were coming in. And if you read, look up the word Nephilim, it means great warriors. And anybody who is sinful could be a great warrior and willing to do anything that it takes to, to be a great warrior. The school of thought says that these angels came down, somehow had sex with women, and had half-breed children. 
I do not know how that happens because it's not scriptural because in Genesis 1 it says everything reproduces after its own kind and angels are not human. So, and Jesus said they don't even procreate, so it's, you know, the, the whole thing doesn't make any sense. So some people will say, well, these, these fallen angels uh, in, came into men and then had sex with them, so you, then you have human and human, so you should not have a half-breed <laughs> half uh, offspring. So I have problems with that. You know, I have biblical problems with it. And so, and out of this whole idea comes an entire doctrine on demons. Because people will say devils and demons are two different uh, uh, entities. They say the devils are the fallen angels and the demons were these half-breed uh, creations that when they were, when the flood came and they were killed, they then lost their, they would, did not have a human soul to be sent to heaven or hell and they would be, had to look for people to live in, to live in the rest of their life, the rest of their existence. And it's a very long, long convoluted <laughs> argument. Uh, and they say that these particular angels that fell are now in chains and waiting to be, because they are just super bad angels and God put them in hell waiting for the end days to, for judgment. Genesis 6 that, that, that they refer this first estate fallen from. Um, I'm not going to go deep into it, but I have serious problems with that whole thing because of the Bible. The Bible says you can only reproduce after, them, after your own kind. So if there were angels having any chance of procreating, they would procreate with other angels, not with humans. Now, they will give you a long excuse. If you want to find somebody, go find somebody who believes that there's lots of them out there. Uh, lots of the people on the Christian, our local Christian channel, teach this, teach the truth, that the, uh, teach the idea, not the truth, but the idea of Genesis 6 where angels and this whole, this whole process. Um, some of the good teachers teach this, <laughs> teach this doctrine. And I, when they start teaching it, I turn them off. And usually I'll listen to them when they get, get done with it. Um, I believe that the first estate that they left was that they were created. They were with God before creation. They were there at creation. Satan took a third of the angels with him when he rebelled. And they left their first estate, which was their position in heaven. All right. Uh, so again, how are you going to define first estate? And that's your first place to come to. What does first estate mean? All right. I believe it was their heavenly realm where they, they were to, to worship God. Satan was, was Lucifer at the time, and he led the, led the worship of God in heaven from, from the angels. He was the number one angel from everything that we can talk, uh, learn about him, and he rebelled. Now, there's controversy. We don't have enough about why he rebelled. You know, did he just get proud and, and he fell before the, before the earth was created? Did he fall after the earth was created? We don't know. He could have looked down at man being created in God's image and him having this special creation saying, you know, and learning that the angels were going to be below human beings at some time and said, there is no way I'm going to do that and rebelled. He could have rebelled before, before, before the creation of man. We don't know because there's nothing in the scripture that tells us when he re rebelled or, or the reason why he rebelled. All we have is in 
um, Isaiah 14 uh, and Ezekiel 28, we have the, the statements of his falling. And so we know that he fell. The angels followed him. A third of the angels followed him. Their own accord. You would not punish anybody who was forced to do something. So they've had to have had their angels at some point had some free will. Uh, they apparently do not have free will now, but that'll be us when we get to heaven. When we die and enter into our eternal state and we get our glorified body, we made our decisions here. And we will, the good news to us is that we will not sin because we have made our decision to follow him and we get our glorified body and we'll be perfect. So why did they fall? How did they fall? Uh, we don't know. I do not believe they were forced. I don't believe Satan went wrong. You, 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 and you, you, follow me. Because <laughs> then you cannot really blame somebody <laughs> for being forced to do something. And this is why Satan right now in our world is changing all the sins that God calls sin. If you notice what's happening, they're being redefined as psychological sicknesses. Because the point is, if you're a kleptomaniac and you're stealing, you're not sinning because you're sick. You just can't help yourself. It's a very dangerous place to get into. And you, and you look at the psychology's list of ailments, everything that God calls a sin has a psychological ailment attached to it. Why? Not, I'm not saying the psychologists are bad, but Satan is working to get all sin recertified as sickness because if it's sickness then there's no way you can be responsible for it. You, know, you don't get somebody, you don't blame somebody for catching a cold or pneumonia. They're sick. And that's their attitude. If, you, if you're mentally sick, you cannot be blamed for it. So in Isaiah 14, starting at verse 12, this is the fall of Lucifer. How art you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For you said in, in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also on the mount of the congregation on the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. They that see you shall narrowly look in you and consider you, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble and that did shake the kingdoms? So... These are the seven I wills of Satan. Note that he never said he was going to be greater than God. He will be like God. He was at least smart enough to know that he wasn't going to replace God. But he wanted to sit next to God on a throne in heaven. And you know, I love that one, the, the very end of that, that people will look at him at the white throne judgment at the end of time and say, is this, this is the one that every, everybody was afraid of? This is the one that caused the trump? Uh, caused us to tremble. I just can't imagine what he looks like for that to be the statement when, he, when he's drawn up and he looks at, you know, and I think every time I read that verse, I think of the Wizard of Oz in the movie, you know, when they say, don't look behind the curtain, don't, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. You know, you know pay attention over here to all that's going on over here, but not over there to the, to the wink, weak wimp over there. This is what Satan is. He's a flim-flam man showing off and pretending to be something, and yet he really was something. He was the head of all the angels. And he really did have a position. 
And it says that his, that his body was, had pipes built into it. He led the music and worship of heaven. He was designed for worship and had a great authority, but was not happy with his place that God gave him. Which gives us something to be careful of is how many times are we not happy with the place that God gives us to be in? And it's something we have to be very concerned with at times because it is so easy to wish that we were doing something else, that we were somebody else. With, you know, God, you know, I don't have a church of, of 10,000 people. God, can I have a church of 10,000 people like so-and-so? Now, I don't, I don't, espouse, don't even desire to have a church that big. It would be too much trouble. But it, sometimes it hits me like, God, it would really be nice to have more than 20, 20 or 30 people. And that, that is an attack of Satan, you know, that he keeps hitting on me and saying, you deserve more than that. You deserve this. But you know what? I want to be faithful with who God gives me to be faithful with. If God wants me to have a big church, he'll either make this church big or he'll put me someplace else in the future. And I don't know when I say that. Everybody here says, no, I don't want a big church. But, <laughs> you know, I want the church God wants us to have. Well, but you do have but well, we do have the internet people, yes. So yeah, we do, we do have a larger group out there. So, But Satan's fall was just because of he's not wanting what he was given. And he says that I'm going to take more. And again, nowhere in there does it tell us when that happened. We know that he was already the attacker when he went after after Adam and Eve in the garden. So sometime before that, that event happened, but the when we don't exactly know uh, with great uh, confidence on there. And then in Ezekiel 28, verse 12, it says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, You sealed up the sun, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You have been in Eden, the garden of, of God. Every precious stone was in your covering, the sardis, the topaz, and the diamond, and the beryl, and the onyx, and the jasper, and the sapphire, and the emerald, and the carbuncles, and, and gold, and, work, and the workmanship of your tambourines and, and your pipes was prepared in you in that day that you were created. You did anoint the cherub. You are the anointed cherub that covers, and I have set you so... You have, on your, you have upon the mountain of God, you have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You were perfect in all your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in your heart. This is a description of Lucifer. And then iniquity was found in his heart. He walked with God on the mountain of God. He was with him. He was in his presence. And yet rebelled against God. You know, and you know, it's kind of funny when you, when you talk to people because people will go, well, if I was walking with Jesus, I would, have, I would have been on his side. Well, a very small portion of the population was on his side. You know, if I was walking with the, Jew, the, the Israelite people during the wilderness wandering, I would, have been one that would, I would have been one of them that was ready to go in with Joshua. No, you would have been with the majority that was ready to, re, to rebel and attack. You know, because if we're not faithful completely faithful now, we would not have been completely faithful then. 
And this is so much fun, you know, I'll hear people every once in a while say, well, if I win the lottery, I'll start tithing. Uh, you're not, are you tithing now? Nope. Then you won't be tithing from your lottery check. Don't, don't tell us that you're going to, to, to tithe on a lottery check because you'll have more money and you won't gonna, you're not going to want to tithe then either. You know, but it's so easy for people to say, if things were better, I would do what God wants me to do. You know, and you know, what are they really saying when they say that? God's ways are not best. I know better. And when things get good, I'll, I'll do what God wants me to do. And what God says to them is, when you start doing what I tell you to do, then I can bless you because you're being faithful. And they won't be blessed when they're not faithful. Not by God, anyway. And in the long run, they will never be blessed without being faithful. And this is what God keeps asking us to do. He says, be faithful. So we have this, this falling from the first estate. They left their habitation, which was heaven, and they're reserved in the future for everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of that great day. What great day? The white throne judgment. When every knee will bow before God. Now, this is going to be great. We will not be in the white throne judgment because we are the bride of Christ. We will be sitting with him in the judgment area looking down because we will have gone through the Bema Seat judgment where our works are judged and rewarded, rewarded for, for the good works that we do. And the rest will be burnt up and disappear. But we will sit there at the white throne judgment where God will bring judgment on every single person that has rejected Christ. And this is going to be very hard at times. Uh, Jenkins in the Left Behind series, if you read the, the, one of his last books, he actually had an interesting point about the White Throne Judgment. And his point was, because God is able to talk to everybody at one time, that he's going to judge the entire world at the same moment. You know, because, you know, I kind of thought, well, God, how long is it going to take to judge billions of people that have walked on this earth? So I kind of liked it when I saw that, saw that in his book. Yeah, that's perfect. God could talk to everybody individually at the same moment. And, and they all can hear him. And they'll all hear him and they'll all understand and there will be a one-on-one -on -one conversation with everybody at the same moment and that every knee will bow. And, every and they will all confess Jesus is Lord, and that will be too late for it to be a salvation prayer. That will just be a confession of he is Lord, because I'm looking at him. He is, he's in control as they get thrown into the lake of fire. Not even hell at that point, because we have two different entities. We have hell, which is a holding cell until the white throne judgment, and then death and Hades, or hell, will be cast into the lake of fire at, after the white throne judgment. And the lake of fire is, you know, if we want to take a look at it, if, if you think about it in terms that we know in humanity, jail is that little holding place. This is where they go until they have their court date. After they're found guilty, they get sent to prison. So we can look at hell as being jail and the lake of fire being prison. Paul, Paul used the term for angels, principalities, first position, first, first ones, which is that word. So they did not keep their position of authority because they had authority. 
they had authority whenever they were created and still have authority. The angels still have authority and so the demons because of their, you know, the, this gets us into a whole lot of authority. God does not take the position of authority away from somebody just because they're not being, doing it right. He puts them under greater judgment because they're not doing it right. So the angels and the fallen angels both have authority. Now we're told by Paul that they are our schoolmasters and that when we come of age, in other words, we die and get heaven and get our glorified bodies, that whole relationship switches over. And there are many people, and I, and I kind of think this might be what Satan was upset about. We're going to get to rule over these pieces of earth, and we're going to train them, and we're going to protect them, and then you're going to make them rulers over us? And got a little bit proud. We can see it. We can see exactly how it would happen. This was the way that the slaves were in, in the Roman Empire. Your children, as a master, would be put under a slave. The slave was a schoolmaster. His job or her job was to get them up in the morning, make sure that they ate their breakfast, took them to school, made sure they didn't get into trouble in school, brought them home, helped them with their homework. And then at a certain point of their age, all of a sudden, everything flipped. That person that you had full control over for years was now master over them and this is what's going to happen with the angels they are schoolmasters they're they're trying to keep us out of trouble big trouble and they're our protectors uh, trying to help us learn our lessons and then at some point when we end up with our glorified bodies the relationship switches and now we're master over them and there are many that say that Satan got a hold of that and said no way no how <laughs> Am I going to be part of that? Now, this is speculation, but I can, I can picture that that's a big part of why he might have rebelled. You know, and he could have just had pride in his, you know, you know, it's speculation, but I can picture that being the case. But, you know, we even saw that in America, many of these plantation owners would put their children under the care of a slave to teach them and care for them. And then at a point, everything would flip, you know, when they became an adult. So this is, happens all the time in, in that slave-master relationship, uh, raising their kids. And so the angels had a position and have a position that will all of a sudden flip in heaven where we will now be in charge and they will be just plain See, servants. I've never thought of that before, that speaking of the angels. Yeah. I always Hebrews tells us very clearly that we will be, the angels will be in subjection to us. So God teaches that there's going to be a flip in the, in the relationship. And so it's quite possible that Satan saw that. You know, they left their first estate. They left their first positions. And what did Jesus tell us? That if you want to be the master, you need to be the servant. You, you know. And I think that even when we're in heaven... It's not that we're going to take and abuse the angels because now we're in charge of them. You know, we should be taking and being caring for them and being honest. And one of the greatest things about leaders, good leaders, are they serve those that they're uh, overseeing. They're not trying to abuse them. Now, there are times when I was a manager, most of the time I would, you know, convince people to do it. I could, I could do the work as well as they could in most cases. 
and I wasn't trying to abuse them. I, there were times when it was busy that I said, now, now I'm in charge, so you go, you go do this. You go do this. But most of the time, I was saying, this needs to be done. Would you take care of it? Now, now every once in a while, somebody would say no, and I'd go, well, you really didn't know. I really wasn't asking you to do it. I'm just being nice. Go do it. All right. But they also, I had one person one time that really sassed me, and he goes, I've never seen you do anything like this. And one of my employees came in and go, don't even go there. He can do it better than we can. Go do what he told you to do. Uh, because I had, I've done everything there was to do. Uh, and, you know, there's many churches that are training pastors, and they, if they find somebody and they, that they wants to be a pastor and they won't clean toilets or, or sweep, sweep floors or, or do work, they'll go, no, you don't deserve to be a pastor. Because the pastor should be a servant to the church. Now, does that mean the pastor's always going to go out there and do the manual labor of the, of the church? No, but they better be willing to. And believe me, I've done enough of the cleaning of the toilets around here and, what we, and the floors and everything. It's, you know, whatever needs to be done, I'm going to take care of and make sure it gets done. And so this is where they're at, and they're going, these angels left their first estate, and they're waiting for judgment. So the angels know that we're going to be over there. Yes. Well, they know the Bible better than we do. You know, the Bible isn't hidden from them. Satan knows the Bible better than we do, and he twists it very well. Because when he tempted Jesus, what did he do? He quoted scripture to Jesus. You know, jump off, the, jump off this tower because, it is, because the angels have charge over you. They won't let you hurt your toe. And Jesus said, you will not tempt the Lord your God. You know, he, he gave back scripture. Satan took a verse out of, out of context and, and, and said, said this. And Satan knows the scriptures. And this is what's hard sometimes is, you know, if we're not knowing our scriptures ourselves, we can get twisted around real easy by somebody taking scripture out of context and saying, well, it says right here. And we need to be very careful about that because it is easy to take things. You know, and it's been said that if you want to, that you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say, and it really can. If you take things out of context, it, you know, it can say what you want. Uh, you know, I've told the joke before, and I don't tell jokes very well, but this one's a good one. It goes, man points down into the Bible and says, Judas went and hung himself. He goes, well, that can't be my verse for today. And then it goes, it goes it picks another one and goes, uh, what you do, do quickly. He goes, well, that can't be my verse. And then he went to another one and he goes, and what you do, do not delay. <laughs> Those are all verses. <laughs> but none of them was to go hang yourself. You know, but you can make the Bible say pretty much what you want it to say if you take things out of context and just apply it. And it's weird that he said, because I understand, if Satan knows the Bible inside out, then he knows us how it's going to end. Why doesn't he believe that? Because he is in rebellion to God and wants to get the victory. <laughs> he thinks somehow that he can beat God. This has been his whole plan. Before Jesus came, why did he want to get rid of Israel? Because Israel was going to be bringing the Messiah. So if he could get rid of Israel, there would be no Messiah. Once Jesus was born, what was the first thing he tried to do? Kill all the babies in, in that area. And God rescued him. 
Then he tried to kill Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane so he wouldn't go to the cross. Then he tried to keep him in, in, in the grave after he was crucified and couldn't do that. Why is he going after Israel today? Because all of the end days are focused around Israel. If he can get rid of Israel, then he can prove, God, you didn't know the future. Look at all this. You said Israel was going to worship in the temple. You said this. You said this. You said this. And he's going to try hard to make sure that things don't happen. So yes, he understands the Bible, but somehow he has deluded himself to believe that he can change God's plan. And how? I don't know. He, you know, he is just completely deluded. Why does anybody try to fight when there's no chance of being victorious? And Satan is somehow deluded himself that he can beat God. Even though he knows what God says, but he's trying to kill the, the Israelites, he's trying to kill, destroy the Jews over and over again so that he could try to say, see, God, you did not know what you were talking about. Because if he can defeat God in, any, in, in, in even one point, he can say, God, see, you, you were wrong. I beat you in this one area. And then that would give him even more confidence that he could, can win. But he's never going to win even in one area. And like I said, if he can beat him in one spot, then he can say, see, you're not as powerful as you say you are. Now, we don't understand because we do not see things from the beginning to the end. Go back to the biodome where the trees were growing really tall, but never had anything bad, you know, never, never got shaken by wind and then started breaking. We don't realize how much he loves us by letting us be tried and tested to build our strength. We only look at it and say, God, this is painful. I don't like it. I don't like what's going on. And God's saying, I know what's best for you, and this is going to be good for you. And we're going, it sure doesn't feel like it's good for me. Now, when we get to heaven, we'll see it from the opposite side. You know, I love the story of the, the idea that we're on the wrong side of the tapestry of this life, looking up at the, at the mess. And because my wife has done uh, needlepoint and everything, I've looked at those things that look really nice on one side, then I look at the other, and there's all kinds of knots and ties and lines stretched all over the place. And I'm going, sure looks ugly from this side. God is making a tapestry of life. And, you know, if you're making a picture, you have to have dark places in the picture to draw out the picture. You know, maybe my entire life is that dark line on the, on the tapestry of life or something. You know, and I'm looking at my life has sure been miserable. And God says, yeah, but look at this beautiful picture that, was come, that came out of it because you allowed me to use you that way. Now, none of us have a life that's totally miserable, but you understand what I'm saying. Even if I had a totally miserable life and nothing went right in my entire life, but I followed God and I was faithful, he's going to say, see, your line right here made this area of the, of the picture stand out. Now, I don't think he's ever going to give anybody an all-bad life. Don't get me wrong, but you understand what I'm saying. Even if it was, there's a reason for it. And it's hard sometimes for us to understand that. It's hard to accept it out there. There's things he does and there's things we do. There's going to be consequences and there's going to be things he allows to happen or the, allows the test. We're still responsible for what our response is to that test. Consequences consequences for our choice of what he allowed, allowed to come our way. So 
when I choose the wrong direction from the, consequence, from the choice that God puts in front of me, I will have a consequence that is going to be because of that wrong decision. Now, now I will, believe me, I've said this many times because I really truly believe Romans 8.28 with all my heart. There's times when I've gone to God and go, God, I do not understand how this is ever going to be for good. But I believe this verse, so I am just going to trust you. And it's hard sometimes to trust him. When you're looking at it and saying, God, how can this event be for good? And I think the most important thing we have to understand, and I've said this many, many times, is the verse does not say that it is for my good. He says it is for good. Yeah, not my good necessarily. Now in heaven, it'll be for my good. I'm going to get rewarded for anything that I walk through faithfully. But it may be just for somebody to watch, watch you walk faithfully through the trial in pain and suffering so that then they can look and say, well, if they can go through that, I need to trust God more. And we won't know until we get to heaven that that, is, that was the result of it. You know, and I've shared with you because God did use that with, for me one time. I walked six months in gout pain. I was in pain for six months. And a year later, somebody said to me, you really encouraged me when I watched you continue to serve God and you were in obvious pain. Now, I don't say that to, to lift myself up, but I'm, I use that to show you how nothing good about it, but it, God used it with somebody else to say, see, he can, he can do this. So can you. And we don't know what God is doing and who he's touching with our life when we're going through pain. And when we're going through suffering, and we continue to serve faithfully. And we don't know anything about how God is using that. And when we get to heaven, I think we're going to be so surprised when we get to heaven and God says, here are your rewards for all the things that you have done. And you're going to go, God, I was just living for you. And he goes, exactly. And look at all the lives that you've touched. God, I just, I just gave my tithes. And he goes, exactly. And look at all the lives that were touched because you gave. And this money went here and, and there and, and went to missionaries and, and did this and did that. And you're going to go, wow, I didn't know that. And I don't know if you've ever had this happen where somebody says, I've been watching you and you've been so faithful. And I just want to say thank you. It's encouraged me. It's happened over and over to me over the years. People are watching us. If you tell anybody that you're a Christian, you tell anybody that you're going to church, they even find out that you're going to church, they're watching you. Does your life match up to what they, what they think a Christian should be? Unfortunately, we can never match up to what most people think Christians are supposed to be because they think Christians are supposed to be perfect. But are we a good example of Christ to the people around us? Are we living for him? And this is going to be very important for us to, to understand as we go forward with God. What are people seeing? Are we standing for him? Are we walking with him as best we can? Or are we in rebellion as Lucifer and the, angel, and the fallen angels were and, and are? We need to understand that the good news for us, Satan brought one-third of the angels down. That means that he's outnumbered two to one. We have more help to help us than he has to attack us. And if he needs more angels 
to help us for some strange reason, he'll give us plenty of angels to help us. Now, I don't know how many angels we need since how one angel killed 185,000 man army in one night, so I don't know how, why we would need more than one angel to protect us from anything, but he can get us as many angels as we need to protect us at any time. So Jesus in the, in the garden said he, he, could, he could have brought, what is it? Well, when he was standing before Pilate, he said, I, I could have called 10,000 angels. I am sure that God would give us any number of angels that we would need. And if you think you need angels, ask for them. <laughs> I don't see why he wouldn't give them to you. I don't know if I'd ask him for 10,000 angels. I don't think I deserve 10,000 angels, but I personally would just ask God for help and then let him figure out what help I need. Jesus had a little more authority than we do to command angels. But part of when he was talking to Pilate, he was making two points. Pilate, you have no, you're not even in charge of this. I'm in charge right now. I could call 10,000 angels. What he says is I could call 10 legions of angels. That's more than Rome had at its entire disposal. And go, I can call more angels than you even could, could even fathom. And he's not even talking about how strong each one angel could have wiped out his entire uh, legion. And he was just telling Sparrow, uh, Sparrow, yeah, Pilate, you know, Pilate, you're not in charge here. And if you think about this, when Jesus was arrested, he's going, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And they fell down. They get back up and they ask again, I am. And he fell down. They get ready to arrest him. He says, okay, I'm the one you want. Let these ones go. He was in full command of everything that happened in his arrest, in his trial, technically even in the beating that he took. He was in full control because he could have stopped it in any moment. And he was in full control when he was on the cross. And if you think about it, it says at the very end, he gave up his spirit. He decided, it's done. I'm, I'm, I'm dead. It wasn't taken from him. It wasn't, wasn't stripped from him. He decided, okay, the payment's done. It is finished. I'm dead. And then he was resurrected in three days and came back victorious. He was always in control of everything that was going on. And we would have looked at it and said, wow, look at all the chaos around him. He's not in control. But when you really look at what he said, what he did, he was in control through all of that chaos, all of it. And if we really understand that he's in control of our life, even when we think we're in chaos, God is in control. And he's ready to say, just like he did to Peter, step out of the boat in the middle of the storm and walk with me. I'm in charge. I can, we can, you can walk through this storm. I have your hand. I have your back. Whatever term you want to use. I am on your side. I've got your back. Matter of fact, I'm the one all around you. I'm leading you. I've got your back. I've got your sides. Just stay focused on him and walk through the storm. And when we're in that middle of the storm, just know it may look like a storm to us, but from God's perspective, it's not a storm. It may look like we're climbing Mount Everest, and he's going, now when you get to the other side, it's going to look like a molehill. And how many times have you gone through facing a giant, you know, what you think is a giant or a, or a monstrous obstacle, and you get to the other side and realize, oh, there was no problem at all in, in this. God, you got me through it, and oh, that doesn't really look that, that big after all. That, that little anthill that I stepped over, that was, that, that was the mountain that I thought was so 
un, un, unobtainable. And we get to the other side and it's like, wow, God, you really were in control and it wasn't as big as it seems. And we go through this all the time where we look at it and say, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Why? Because we always amplify our problems. We always amplify our problems and make them bigger than they are and wonder how we're going to get through it. But Paul said it, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not height, nor depth, not width, nothing. And he went through all the, and then he goes, and if that's not, the physical's not enough, not principalities, not demons, not, not, not anything. And he went down this whole list of everything in the physical world and spiritual world and says, nothing can separate us from God. Now, we may feel like we're surrounded. We may feel like everything's going around, but God is still there. And the more that we can focus on him during that period of time, the better off we're going to be. Not letting him out of our sight. Because when we feel, when we let him get out of our sight, or take our eyes off him, I guess is a better way to say it, then we feel like we're abandoned. And as soon as we feel abandoned, we're not finding anything good in it. And there's always something good. And if you read any of the biographies, uh, biographies in those books, you're always going to find people keeping their focus on God, at least by the end of the book. At the beginning of the book, they, they fall flat on their face many times. But by the end of the book, that's what made them you know, worthy of the book being written about them. <laughs> they're starting to do it right. And they're starting to see God and focus more on him. Uh, you know, if you read The Hiding Place, when they're in the, they're in the prison and, and uh, Corey says, I'll never be thankful for the, for the fleas and the, and the lice. And her sister looks at her and says, the guards don't come in here and rape us and give us a hard time. They're afraid to come in here. And she all of a sudden changed her mind. Fleas and lice were a pretty good thing. You know, and do we understand? And that's just a good point because it does tell us that even when we think there's nothing good about what it is, God says there's something good. There's something good, and he's going to make something good out of everything. If nothing else, there's a reward in heaven for enduring through the, through the problems that come our way. Lord, we ask you to bless this evening. Lord, help us to focus on you and all that we do. Help us to keep our life in you and focused on you. Help us to always see that you have a plan and that you are a good God and that you care for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man 
believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know Him. Do you know Him? Do you want to know Him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.